0: World. And it actually is a great segue to Psalm 96. If you'll turn there, we're going to talk about worship and witness and how the two of them really are inseparable. I'm often tapped to do a worship conference. Uh, I think because I'm a hymn writer, people will say, well, come talk about worship. But if I'm going to talk about worship, I'm also going to talk about missions because the two are uh, so closely connected, as we'll see in the text. Now, uh, I have wanderlust. I want to see the whole world. You know, I, I am so grateful for the United States. I'm glad to live here, but I love seeing uh, just the creativity of all the different cultures all over the world. I love the Olympics, uh, and all my life I've cheered for Americans. I still cheer for Americans, USA, USA, USA. Uh, But I've caught myself, you know, there were times when in in cheering for American athletes, I would be hoping that a 13-year-old Russian gymnast would fall off a balance beam. And I caught myself like, Chris, what is wrong with you? She's a 13-year-old girl. You know, I just enjoy seeing seeing the world, or uh, the World Cup is so interesting for that same reason. Uh, I'm sorry to put this song in your head, it'll be there all day, but… Uh, even going through It's a Small World and saying, what country is that and and what culture is that? Uh, There's a beautiful image uh, from Norman Rockwell that kind of shows the diversity of the world. Well, I remember the first time I went to Africa about 15 years ago, and uh, we landed in uh, Uganda in the capital city, and then we were driving out to a bush where we were going to do a Bible conference. And um, the others that I was with had been there several times, they're kind of catching up on some sleep, but I'd never been there before, and I'm just, my, my eyes are glued to all the windows, I'm trying to take everything in, and it was a life-changing experience because I would see two little boys uh, playing in, in the mud uh, yard in front of their hut, and I would realize that those two boys were made in the image of God just like me. And then I'd see three ladies carrying impossibly heavy loads on their head with no hands. And I think those three ladies are going to live somewhere forever. And that group of men that is sitting on their motorcycles by the side of the road, which happens all over Africa, I guess they're waiting for work, kind of the taxi drivers. uh, They are no less important than I am. Uh, I'm I'm not special. I'm one of eight billion people in the world. And starting to see that, that all of these people are just like us, they're eternal, they're going to heaven or they're going to hell, but so many of them haven't heard, it It began to disturb me. Uh, we treat the plight of the unreached as though it's, you know, kind of a, a theological curiosity. You know, it's apologetics, uh, how, how do we explain that away? And I feel like we, we don't really… Recognize and and allow ourselves to feel the anguish of that. There are so many people that live and die, and they never even had a choice, they never even had a chance to reject the gospel because they never heard the gospel. And you know, we can we can explain how God is is just and we can explain that you know Christ is the only way. But rather than that being kind of a trivial discussion for us, it should be unacceptable to us. It should be unacceptable that there are people that aren't hearing the gospel. Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. But then it poses some questions. How will they believe in someone they haven't heard of? How are they going to find a Savior if He's a complete stranger to them? there is an urgency to getting the gospel out. And uh, I speak in American churches regularly, and you know, we've begun to hyphenate the word gospel. We are gospel-centered, gospel-rooted, gospel-teaching, gospel-singing. I love all of that. But if the only time we talk about the gospel is to other Christians… You know, we sing great hymns about the work of Christ, and, and we can study the, the, the gospel in its depths and intricacies, but if we're only talking to each other about the gospel, we are not gospel-centered, and we're not obedient. The gospel is a message that needs to go out to the lost. And it's not like that's the fine print of the New Testament. You know, every one of the gospels climaxes, not with the death of Christ, not even with the resurrection of Christ, but with the Great Commission Matthew says, go to all the world and make disciples. Or Mark says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Luke says that the message of Jesus' suffering and, and triumph, the, mes- the message of, of uh, forgiveness of sins that comes from repentance, this has to be told among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Acts picks that up where Dr. Luke wrote wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he followed it up with Acts. And just the way he ended Luke, he begins Acts by saying uh, in Jesus' words that you are witnesses of these things to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Even John repeatedly has Jesus saying, I've come to do the will of my Father. I've come to finish His work. I've been sent on a mission and then he says twice at the end of the book of John, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Go. The church I've been attending in Atlanta ends their services. Instead of saying, you are dismissed, it says, you are sent. That's what Jesus has called us to do. And, and again, it, it's not the fine print. It's not… Missions is not an addendum stapled onto the back of the New Testament. It's right at the heart of Christianity. So you know we see the plight of orphans and we're moved by that, but but that's just that's a drop in the bucket. We should see the plight of the lost all over the world and be moved. Well, Psalm ninety six kind of gives us a glimpse of that. Uh, missions really becomes the the M O for God's people in the New Testament. The Old Testament wasn't primarily a a go and tell message. It was an invitation. Gentiles could come and see, and they could come to Jerusalem like, uh, like uh, the Queen of Sheba or maybe like Ruth the Moabitess, they could convert to Judaism. But there wasn't really a missions program in the Old Testament. But here we're going to see it predicted in Psalm 96, and roughly a thousand years later we have the day of Pentecost, and now the church is exploding all over the world. Psalm 96, before we read it, let me just give you a few things to kind of look for. So, when I read, uh, you'll be thinking. This is an example of one of the jubilant, uh, the, jubilant the, the happy psalms. Last week, we studied Psalm 55, and it is admittedly dark. And it's helpful because our lives are sometimes very dark, but Psalm 96 has a very different tone to it. Uh, so, there's this, this joyful praise. It's going to foreshadow the inclusion of Gentiles in God's work, not just the Jews. I've kind of already mentioned that, but there's a, there's a prediction of missions that's there. And then I'm not going to emphasize this much today, but there's also a foreshadowing of the new creation. We know that the world is broken. Do, do you all sing the song, Is He Worthy? No, I love that. The very first line, do you feel the world is broken? We do. You know, is all creation groaning? It is. But this psalm looks forward to a time when everything is made new. We read about that in Revelation 21 and 22, where Jesus wipes away all tears. He makes everything new. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sin. Revelation 22 says there's no more curse. The curse from Genesis 3 is finally reversed at the end of the Bible, so there, there's kind of this whimsical description of new creation, and instead of groaning, like Romans 8 says, uh, they are rejoicing, they're dancing, they're clapping. Uh, we see that here. We see it in Revelation. Uh, actually, Isaiah 55 has, has some images like that as well. Uh, so look for that as I read the text as well. Now, let me pray, and then uh, let's study Psalm 96 together and see what the Lord has for us. Father, thank you that we can gather on this, your Lord's Day. We can sing your praises. We can offer prayers to you. We can uh, be instructed in the Scriptures. Now, Lord, I pray as I have the privilege and responsibility to preach, I pray for your help. Help me to communicate your word with clarity and with accuracy. And then I ask for you to do in hearts what I can't do. I pray that you would would shine the light of your truth into individual lives. And wherever people find themselves, I pray that they'll be helped by the Scriptures. By your Spirit, use your word today. In a group this size, certainly there are some that come in and and they're not yet born again. They're still lost in sin. They're still unreached. I pray, Lord, that in your mercy you would open their eyes, that you would draw them to yourself, grant them faith and repentance and save them. I pray for Christians to be moved toward maturity and to have a greater heart for ministry, uh, both for for worship and for witness. So, Lord, please do your work today. Help us, and we'll be jealous that the glory goes to no one but to you. Well, I pray for your blessing on Calvary Baptist Church. I pray that you will continue to build your church. I pray for a continued legacy of your faithfulness. Uh, This is your church bought with your blood bless it, have your hand on it, protect it, use it, grow it, and be glorified through this assembly of believers. For Jesus' glory, we pray, and in his name, amen. Psalm 96, let's read it together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary." Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. What an encouraging psalm. You know, some of you, before you came to church today, you had Fox News on, and I want to tell you that the hope for equity and justice is not the right or the left or centrist. It's just, Jesus, come fix this mess. Don't you long for a day when he's going to judge the world with justice and equity and righteousness? What an encouraging psalm. Psalm 96. I begin with this idea that God deserves praise from His people. We call that worship. Okay, we we gather for worship, and it's all focused on Him. And this psalm says that when we worship God, we're just giving to Him the glory He deserves. God deserves worship. So today, when you gather to pray or to sing or to listen to the Scriptures… You know, you're, you're not doing something that, that you should necessarily be congratulated for. You're just doing what makes sense to do. You're, you're doing what you were made to do, what you were saved to do. You're doing what the church was designed to do. Ephesians uh, 1, three times in verse 6, 12, and 14 says that God is working through the church that we should be to the praise of His glory. God deserves our praise. Even the English word worship means that we're giving Him, we're ascribing to Him worth. We're giving Him the glory due His name. Now, we're urged to give Him the glory that He deserves. You recognize we'll never do that because He deserves so much more glory than we're capable of giving to Him. You know, it's like when we sing His praises, we're going to the ocean and filling a bucket… And, and we're going to be bailing for the rest of eternity. We'll never give Him the glory he, he fully deserves, but we're going to try. We have an endeavor to do that. We worship Him. Now, I love this, especially as a guy that loves Christian music. Uh, there is an emphasis on singing. In verses 1 and 2, we see the command three times, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. I think there are Christians that say, you know, I'm, I'm just not that much into singing. I had a lady approach me at the church in Ohio and she said, Pastor, we waste so much time early in the service, why don't we cut the singing and get to the good stuff? Well, she was talking to the wrong guy. I said, the singing is the good stuff. Actually, the command to sing is the most frequent command in all of the Bible. There are more commands to sing than any other command in Scripture. I'm not saying it's the most important command. You know, the most important command is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love our neighbors, ourselves. We're commanded to be holy. That's important. But the command to sing is significant. And, you know, if you're one of the people that says, well, I just kind of endure that part of the service. I just stand like this. what? Then you're disobeying Scripture. And, man, heaven is going to be a challenge for you because we're going to be singing a lot. To sing praise to God is a glorious thing. I said last week, people forget my sermons, but you remember songs. You're going to take them home and, and give glory to God through singing. We're giving God praise. We're speaking, we're speaking to Him. We're, we're rejoicing in His perfections. In true biblical worship, there is a laser-like focus on God. Worship is about God. Did you notice in the psalm, it says, we sing to the Lord… and and it kind of gives us a reason. Verse 4, why? For, or because the Lord is great and therefore is greatly to be praised, we're we're rejoicing in Him. Look at verse 6. We're rejoicing in His splendor and His majesty and His strength and His beauty. We're giving Him glory. We're, We're worshiping Him for His holiness. We have all these descriptions of God, And because I'm a word nerd, I apologize for this. I'm going to take you back to English class for a moment. But if if you want to be kind of more entranced with the goodness of God, read the scriptures, read the Psalms in particular, and just look for God. Uh, We we recall his titles. All right, those are nouns, that's the grammar part. All right, we're, we're recalling his titles. So we go to the Psalms and we find out that God is. My shepherd, my fortress, my king. He is a shield. He is a defender. He's the one who lifts my head. Those are descriptions of God and we worship him for that. And you know, we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, or I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the door. And and we have all these titles of God that we should worship him for. We have his attributes. Attributes is a fancy word. It just means His descriptions. Those are adjectives. So, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His compassion. Aren't you glad that God is forgiving? Aren't you glad that God is long-suffering? Aren't you glad He doesn't treat you like your sins deserve? We rejoice in God's attributes. We rejoice in His actions, that He forgives, He heals, He rescues, He saves So grateful for my dad. My dad was a church planter in Ohio and uh, taught me so many things, but maybe chief among them is my dad taught me how to pray. In teaching me how to pray, he would say, Now, Chris, we're going to spend the next 15 minutes as a family praying, but don't ask for anything. Don't ask for someone to be healed. Don't ask for provision. Don't ask for help on a test. We're, we're making no requests. Now, making a request is good. You should do that. But he said, for this time, we're just going to have a prayer of adoration where we just say, God, I want to talk about you and how great you are. And at first I would think, man, how are you going to f- fill 15 minutes just praising God? Now you're going to spend eternity just praising God. If this were a smaller uh, auditorium, I would take a moment and have us pray and just invite you, Pray a sentence. That doesn't make a request, but just pray a sentence that says, God, I, I praise you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your love. I, I thank you that you will never leave me nor forsake me. I praise you that there is no one like you. You are holy. You're, you're in your own category. You're so great. And yet you tolerate us. Yet you think of us. And and just to fill your prayers with praise would be a good way to start the new year. Just begin to pray. And, and you say, man, I, I, lose, I, I lose track of thought. I, I start slumbering. I sleep. Okay, then stop kneeling. Go for a walk in your neighborhood. But as you walk, just give praise to God. I, I would go jogging. And um, often when I'm jogging, I listen to worship music. I find that if I listen to preaching or podcasts, I run slowly. If I listen to music, I still run slowly, but I enjoy it a little bit more. I'll be going through my neighborhood listening to music, and it's funny because there's times I'm jogging, and there's tears coming down my cheeks, which probably looks fitting because I'm in pain. But occasionally, as I'm jogging, I just lift my hands and just, wow, praise God. Yeah, I I just want my thoughts directed to Him. I want to talk to Him and worship Him. Well… Worship focuses on Him and His greatness. And, you know, throughout the Psalms, we have times where worship is, is quiet. We have times where, where you know, there's, there's the bowing down, both Old and New Testament, that the key idea of worship is to kneel down, to bow and fall before the Lord in humility. But in the Psalms, there's also times where there is such jubilant praise. We're shouting to the Lord. We're clapping. We're singing. And and the music is varied in its instrumentation. There There was dancing. I don't know the equivalent in our culture, but there was a celebratory flavor to worship. We're called to give God glory through worship in that way. Now, again, I'm not focused on this, but there's a sense in which our worship of the Savior will one day be joined by all of creation worshiping. And, and it's kind of whimsical, but it talks about like the trees singing uh, or the fields rejoicing. And you, you have kind of this universal symphony of worship when all creation is finally made right, right? When there's, there's no longer the curse and, and, and blood and destruction and cancer and death, but everything is made right again, everything is put under the feet of Jesus again, and all creation will rejoice. And I, I just… I mentioned this in passing, but for most of my life, I've thought of Jesus coming to rescue sinners, which He does, and that's primary. But Jesus isn't only rescuing rescuing sinners from damnation. He's rescuing all creation. He's the second Adam that's going to put everything back together, and He's going to fulfill the dominion mandate. He's going to rescue creation, and everything will be made right. So the whole storyline of Scripture is, The paradise that was lost will be regained. And Genesis 1 and 2 will be reclaimed and improved on in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is a universal Savior. I'm not teaching universalism. There will be people who are lost eternally, but creation itself will be born again. I love that. We worship God because He is worthy of it. So, again and again, we have this call to worship Come, people of God, come and sing His praises because God deserves praise from His people. But wait, there's more. God deserves praise not only from His people, but from all people. And so, worship kind of gives way to witness because there are more people that should be worshiping Him. I ask you a question, Psalm 96.4. Says, says, you know, we're praising God, we're declaring His glory, and here's the reasoning. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. What does it mean that God is great and therefore greatly to be praised? What is it asking us to do? You know, do you think it's telling us to, to sing louder? I mean, when you're leading worship, you say, hey, sing out, God is great and greatly to be praised. Is it asking for more volume? Is it asking for more and better worship songs? Yeah, that's fine. But in context, when it says the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, it comes on the heels of the command to declare His glory among the nations. What Psalm 96.4 means in context is God is so great, He deserves more worshipers. We declare His glory among the nations because God deserves to be praised by those people. We send missionaries to Indonesia because God deserves to be praised by Indonesians. Or we look ahead at Revelation 5 where it says that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation and they're all giving praise to the Lamb and we send out missionaries because I want more people in Nepal to be around the throne with us. I want more people from the greater Greenville area to be around the throne with us. God deserves more worshipers so the glory of god inspires our evangelism our discipleship our missions we go out and share the gospel so that he will be praised more often in the new testament we read that missionaries have gone out third john says these brothers have gone out for the sake of the name what's that mean They're going to the unreached so that the name of Jesus will be adored by more people. John Piper very famously described it this way, missions exist because worship doesn't. It's the first line of his book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. And whatever you think of the rest of the book, that's a great line. We do missions so that others will worship him. We share the gospel so that God will be glorified. It brings us to the second point, and I think we can make this one quickly. God doesn't only deserve praise from His people, He deserves praise from all people. And so, if I were to read again through Psalm 96 and ask you to notice um, all of of the uh, description of the Gentiles, the unreached, I think it would kind of startle you. Let's look at it just very quickly. Psalm 96 Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth, not all the Jews, all the earth. Uh, Verse 3, declare His glory among the nations. We don't just talk about the glory of God to fellow Christians. We talk about the glory of God to the lost, among the nations. It is God, verse 4, is to be feared above all gods, And, and there's kind of air quotes, all false gods, uh, verse 5, the gods of these peoples are worthless idols. They need to know the Lord who made the heavens. And Notice the contrast. They make gods. It might be out of wood. It might be out of stone. It might be out of cement in our day. But we have the true God, and we don't make Him. He made us. And in fact, He made the heavens. And all those poor idolaters need to know the truth. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We're calling on unbelievers to worship. And and it's not ecumenism. It's, It's not saying, well, you know, we all worship the same God. No, it's saying forsake your false gods and come to worship the true God of the Bible. Come to worship the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the, the world, not just middle-upper-class Americans, you know, not just people of one per- political persuasion, not, not just one ethnicity. He came to be the Savior of the world. I love that in John 4. Jesus is ministering to the Samaritans and they're hated by everybody, but not by Jesus. He's not prejudiced, he's not racist. He is going to leave the Jews because they're kind of chasing him away. He goes to Samaria and he preaches to an outcast among the Samaritans. If you're an outcast among the Samaritans, you, that is as bad as it gets. But he brings the gospel to her and through her to her entire village. And at the end, these hated Samaritans who have come to faith in Jesus say, we have come to understand that He is the Savior of the world. Not just the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. He deserves praise from all people. So we don't only sing and speak to the Lord, but we sing and speak about the Lord. I could actually change the word there. We we sing and speak for the Lord. We are actually his spokespeople, his ambassadors. We take the gospel to those who need it the most. So we exalt the Lord to the loss, and we see it again and again. I didn't even finish the psalm, but there's all these references to giving his message to people. But there's also this invitation for people to come and worship him. And I say explicitly, God deserves praise. God is worthy of praise from people who are now Buddhists. People who are Buddhists should be worshiping Jesus. People who are Hindus should be worshiping Jesus. People who are Muslims should be worshiping Jesus. And, you know, that may sound politically correct, and sometimes we say that almost with an anger to us. But, no, I'm I'm saying with the grace of the gospel with the finished work of Calvary with the power of the resurrected Christ those who are in the darkness worshiping false gods should be called to the light so that they will praise the savior again it's not it's not universalism it's not teaching that everybody will be saved it's saying that everybody should at least have the opportunity there's this universal invitation So, because of God's greatness and a a passion for God's glory and a compassion for the lost, we take the gospel to the unreached, praying that they will be with us, literally. We, We sent out missionaries to Indonesia, and we prayed, Lord, I pray that there will be Indonesians in heaven around the throne singing praise to the Lamb because these families are going. Wrote a mission's hymn years ago called, For the Sake of His Name. We go for the sake of His name, and, and we are gathering from every place trophies of God's sovereign grace. We're, we're saying we want worshipers from here and here and here. And, and what's the target? The whole world. Everybody. We do it for their sake, but we also do it for His sake. Again, we have this prediction where what this is saying is kind of out of place. It's an outlier in the Old Testament. You have a few times, you have a few times where maybe a Jonah would be sent to Nineveh, but that that was irregular. But listen, we get get to the New Testament, and Jesus talks about having sheep that are are not just from this fold. Jesus is going to minister to a number of Gentiles, a centurion, a a hated uh, part of the of the military that was suppressing the Jews, and he says, no, I'm going to minister to that guy. I'm going to save that guy. I'm going to save this lady. But then when you get to the book of Acts, I mean, it just wholesale. The gospel's going to the Gentiles, and they don't have to become Jews. How, how, many, how, how many people in this room are, are um, ethnically, culturally, you know, genetically, you're, you're Hebrew, you're Jewish? A few praise God. Praise God for the gospel that works in the lives of Jews. But most of us, most of us are the idolaters. Most of us are the Gentiles. Most of us are the nations that are predicted in Psalm 96. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the gospel is not prejudice? Aren't you glad that God is not a a respecter of persons, that God doesn't play favorites? But God loves all y'all we put it in the South. We've got to get the gospel to those who have not yet heard. This is a picture of the church uh, in Atlanta, Killian Hill Baptist Church. And we're praying around a family that we were sending to the mission field. And this wasn't an ordination. It was just this family's going to the mission field. And rather than just a few pastors praying, we put them right in the middle of the church. The whole group got together and prayed over them. And a question began to kind of haunt me as a pastor. What if success in ministry means that we send people rather than just collecting people? The American model of church success means if a church is successful, it gets bigger. We want more people. We want bigger budgets. We want more buildings. Just grow, grow, grow. But what if success means sometimes we shrink on purpose? Most churches don't think that way. I, I joke that they are like the Hotel California. A few of you uh, will recognize that. Do you know the Hotel California? You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Yeah, we're, we're going to hold on tight. We're going to keep you forever. But what if the church is actually called to train and then deploy people? And I, I use the example of Parenting. Um, early in our marriage, we had a good growth trajectory. We went from two to three, to four, it's 100% growth, to five to six. So for years, we had six people in our family. What if I told you, we are such good parents, these kids are going to live with us forever. They're going to be 40, and we're just building on rooms. You'd probably call social services and say, we need intervention. You know, there's a cult I remember walking my first daughter down the aisle, and, you know, what I thought would be a terrible day was actually a joyful day. I was gaining uh, a son-in-law, and I remember going home that night, and in my house there were not six people, there were five. Is that failure? "Uh Uh-oh, you're in trouble. Your family's shrinking. Another one got married, and now there's four. Another one finished college, has a job. There's three. The last one's in college. There's two. Man, we're blowing it. No, our home might be getting smaller, but there's new homes that are being planted. And I have my first granddaughter on the way, arriving in April. It's very exciting. Okay, my job wasn't to keep. It was to train. And then Psalm 127 says, like arrows, we shoot them out. The church should be thinking that way. And I told you, I I would pray for our church. Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers from Killian Hill Baptist Church. And today I'm praying, Lord, send forth laborers from Calvary Baptist Church. And just quickly, by way of illustration, he started to do that. The Browns, uh, were in our church for about five years, probably our best mentors, disciple makers, and they were recruiting for BMW, trying to get missionaries to go, and then they recruited themselves, and they went to South Africa. And we missed them. I mean, we needed them, but they went out. And then we had our best evangelist. This guy would go to refugees who would come to America. He'd try to live with them, learn their language, give them the gospel. And he was called to the Himalayas. I can't say exactly where, but he's called to that part of the world. And and now we've sent him and his wife over there. He's doing that work. Man, we needed that guy. But not as much as those unreached peoples needed that guy. You know, our church wasn't huge, but it was It was kind of like Georgia football. Like, you know, we had a deep bench. Our second and third string could could function pretty well. I used to say Ohio State, but last week we saw what happens with their bench, and it wasn't good. So I've changed my analogy. I remember preaching a message after a mission trip. I'm preaching a message about uh, needs in a certain portion of the world. And afterwards I got a call. You know, here's a family, and they had grown up. Both of them grew up in the church have multi-generations in the church. They have these sweet kids. Uh, they actually didn't go to seminary. It's valuable, but this family didn't go to seminary. When, when eventually they launched and, um, and he was ordained, I said, listen, he went to Iwana Theological Seminary. He'd been learning the Bible in his church and from his parents, and, and he killed it. I mean, he did such a good job in his ordination. He was a firefighter, but he calls me and says, pastor, we think the Lord's sending us to the other side of the world and and you know what do you think and and we prepared them prayed for them i remember a tearful goodbye when i picked them up from their families drove them to the airport and they're on the other side of the world doing great work during the message they're texting their friends i thought they were taking sermon notes they were texting and they said hey we think we're going to go to the mission field we'd like you to go with us and this other couple said yeah be warmed and filled god bless you good luck we're not going and then God worked in their hearts. They probably read Jonah or something. And they're now teaming together on the other side of the world. We needed those families. This guy was our principal in our school. We needed this guy. But not as much as the unreached needed this guy. And then other people would step up and minister. And I just got to see both of them last November and just rejoice at what God's done in the last several years. It got to a point where somebody would ask some meet, and I'd say, okay, where are you going? Um, Doug Ables, uh, he was our head of school. He said, we think the Lord's calling us to mission field. I said, where? He said, Bob Jones Academy. I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, He's working there, but then they do regular mission trips to train nationals uh, all over the world, especially in the Middle East and in Africa. God called them out of our church. We got to send them a deacon and his wife say, Pastor, uh, yep, where are you going? And they went to Idaho to help in a church plant. Another deacon was training for ministry, just praying for the opportunity, faithful in our church, and we got to send him out. We have a retiree that he loves ministry, but he spent most of his life working for FedEx, and now in his retirement, he's he's training missionaries that are going all over the world. He told me, Pastor, if I take these responsibilities, I'm not going to be able to do the Sunday school superintendent job. I'm not going to be able to teach so much at church. Go, because there's other people who can do that. Utilize your gifts for gospel advance around the world. Uh, The Hildebrands, they're just normal people, business people in our church, but they've gone on a two-year trip to China to teach English and teach the gospel, and they've gone with camps abroad. They're they're just going. And I'm I'm trying to tell you, it's not just young people. Uh, Their son went out from our church. He's pastoring in Michigan. Uh, This family was working in the business office of our school, and now God's called him to be a pastor at the church after my departure. Uh, This family are... We have a pretty white church in a very diverse area and just prayed, Lord, let our church reflect our community. If we reach our community, we'll reflect our community. The Lord brought in this family. I was so excited to meet Kwame and his family. I made a mistake. I said, Kwame, I would like you to give a devotional on a Wednesday night. And it's, you know, five minutes in, I'm like, ah, this guy's called to preach. And I approached him and, and said, have you ever wondered if God's hand is on you and if he's called you to ministry? And just a few months ago, he left his corporate job, and he's pastoring, and he's, uh, he's doing online seminary education, and God, God just kind of kept doing that. Well, eventually, the last family sent out on my watch was my family, me, where, Lord, I love what you're doing here locally, but could you use me around the world to see the gospel go? Well, why do I share all of that? Because I want you to be encouraged at what God's doing, and I want you to consider the possibility that maybe He could use you to do that. These were all normal people. Uh, None actually, I think, were in their 20s at the time, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. God's just using normal people. I used to describe missionaries as heroes. I, I had one guy in the church, and he's kind of unassuming, and I would tell people, you know this guy is Clark Kent. I'm telling you, he's Superman. I've stopped talking like that because it's unhelpful, because it makes normal church people think, well, I'm not Superman, I'm nothing special. Missionaries aren't extraordinary. They're ordinary. They're, they're teachers, they're firefighters, they're stay-at-home moms, and now they take their, their knowledge of the Bible, their burden for the lost, and they, they go to a needy part of the world and, and share the gospel. I've started telling students, don't change your major to missions. Finish a nursing degree and then take a bunch of ministry classes and then God will let you go places that I can't go because I know nothing but Scripture. You have a marketable job and the Lord will use you around the world. God could use this church to just be a slingshot, a launching pad, sending people all over the world. And what a joy, what a joy it is when He does work like that. I'd like to say that God is the great missionary. He's really the one that started this work. He is working through his church to bring sinners from all over the world to himself. He deserves glorious praise from an international congregation. So worship fuels witness. Psalm 96 says, says, people of God worship him. But then it says, those who are not yet the people of God, you're invited to worship Him as well. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. You know, Buddhism will not bring you the peace it promises. And Hinduism is is full of all kinds of tyrannical false gods. You need to know Jesus. At dinner last night, we talked to a guy who grew up in Christian churches, and he converted to Islam. And and we're talking to him and say, man, how did that happen? What was the draw? And we had the best conversation, got to share the gospel. And he just told us, he said, wow, this was a different conversation. Because usually when people hear that I've made that change, they they yell at me. They they criticize me. They get mad at me. We're saying, man, you know, we're interested in you. And you have a beautiful family. We, we just got to know him well. And Allow us to just talk to you about the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Let us talk to you about what Jesus has done. Let us talk to you you about grace. And pray that God will open his eyes to the truth. God deserves praise from even those who are not yet his people. And God wants to use normal Christians like you, your family, your church, to export the gospel to the world's darkest places. Again, missions, it is not the fine print. This is what God is doing in the world. I close with this from David Platt. David Platt is such an advocate for missions. He says, God clearly has decided to use the church and only the church as the means by which the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Okay, He could have used Gabriel and Michael to to preach the gospel. That's not what he decided to do. We are witnesses of these things. We are responsible to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're responsible to make disciples of all nations. And then he makes this chilling comment. He says, there is no plan B. How will they believe in someone they haven't heard of? And how will they hear unless someone is sent, unless someone goes? I'm not naive enough to think that everybody in this church is supposed to be on the mission field. You know, Acts 21 has this cool verse where these people pray for Paul and his team, and when Paul and his team get on the boat, the the rest of the people went home. I love that verse because it just says, you know, for you to go home and be faithful to your church and your community, that's that's a great thing. Don't feel guilty about that. But God is calling more people. So if if you're not going, can you pray more? Can you give more generously? Can you stop getting accustomed to the plight of the unreached? And can it become urgent and heartbreaking and burdensome so that we engage and we say, Lord, solve this problem. Use me. Use our church. Lord of the harvest, send forth more laborers. And we will give all the glory to you, not to us, but to you. I pray, Lord, that you'll use your word. Use Psalm 96 and inspire us to be more enthusiastic in our worship. Inspire us to give you the glory you deserve, to rejoice in your beauty and splendor and strength and majesty and holiness. to to pray without asking for a thing, just to give you the worship you deserve. But Lord, also inspire us to take this gospel message to the unreached so that they can become worshipers as well. Around this area, through the influence of these people, this church, but Lord, all over the world for your glory as well. Like Paul, I ask you, to do exceeding abundantly beyond what I could ask or think. Improve on this prayer. Answer it in powerful ways. Flex, show your might. Show that the gospel is still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we thank you in advance.